Well, good morning. It is good to meet together again in this way and be able to open up God's word and see the wisdom and the truth and the life that it has for us. And as you may be following from last week in the month of November, we're in a bit of a mini series on the topic of hope. And of course, as I said, every message from scripture is always a hopeful message. It is a message of hope, uh, but we're specifically looking at hope in four different areas of our life right now and emphasizing the gospel hope that God gives us in each of these areas. Last week, we looked at hope in our true identity and we considered the false hope that we place in tarnished and distorted identities that are rooted in ourselves and in creation. In other words, we look to form our identity based on our relationship to the horizontal or to some natural characteristic or ability or credit of ourselves. And instead, God says, put your hope in your identity as image bearers of God and our relationship to the creator or the vertical rather than in the horizontal. And this week, we're considering where and how we find our hopes in the midst of addiction and idolatry, which is setting our hearts and our hopes on something other than God. And the first question you may ask and be asking about this message that I am teaching from Scripture today, and a question that I need to answer is, why have you made a connection between addiction and idolatry? Why are we looking for hope in addiction and what's the connection to idolatry? And your second question closely following after that probably is, who is worshiping idols these days anyway? Why is idolatry even relevant to our conversation in the 21st century? And those are good questions and I'm glad you asked because the answers will illuminate the problem we face and the despair that we encounter when we're trapped in addiction or when we find ourselves putting our hope in the created rather than in the creator, which is idolatry. Bob Dylan penned a remarkably theological song back in the ancient days of the 70s that goes something like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Maybe a construction worker working on a home, maybe living in a mansion. You might live in a dome. You may own guns. You may even own tanks. You may be someone's landlord. You may even own banks, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Uh, Dylan, as I said, is remarkably theological and insightful in this. And uh, Bob Dylan's too old for you. You could fast forward to Madonna, who I guess, according to young people today, might be in the early uh, Paleolithic period. Uh, but Madonna sang about being a material girl in a material world. Or if you want to come maybe a little closer to today, Shania Twain singing Ka-Ching. Um, but all of these musicians, all of these poets, all of these songwriters understand something, especially Dylan, that every human has an idolatry problem that they need to solve somehow. We are going to serve somebody or serve something in our life, no matter who we are. It is a fundamental characteristic of the human heart. Everyone looks somewhere for hope. Everyone looks somewhere for the hope that they will be provided security, that they will find joy, that they will find satisfaction, and they will find life in that thing. And then they spend their lives serving that idol in which they've put their hope. 
because that's where their hope lies. Idolatry happens whenever we say to ourselves something like, as long as I have blank, then I can live a joyful life and be satisfied or I feel secure. Or put another way, you can say, I have hope and I have security and I have joy as long as nobody ever takes away blank. And we all fill in the blank in different ways. We can identify the idols that we usually have in those blank spaces, and we usually have two or three little household idols that are our go-to idols for security and satisfaction and hope. And we know what they are because when those idols are threatened, we get fearful or angry, or when those idols fail, we despair. So you can look at your own life and you can identify what is it that when it's threatened, you become angry or hopeless? Or what is it when it lets you down, you despair? That's a good indication that you may have a household idol in which you are putting your ultimate hope. We say things like, how dare you preach that I shouldn't buy as much stuff as I want? Or we think, I don't know how I'll possibly be happy or even survive on this salary when all my friends are making twice as much. And we know all the cliches and stereotypes that fit into this understanding of idolatry in our own hearts today. It might be the woman buying that one more pair of shoes or a dress in order to feel good about herself for a few days until they are in the back of the closet and a new dress and new shoes are required. But she will pour out her savings into the idol of beauty. It might be the man with the freshly formed six-pack abs and the new convertible, seeing if he can't recapture some happiness from his past. He will pour his life into the idol of youthfulness and desirability. It could be the teenager spending hours on their favorite celebrity gossip sites or watching YouTube, living every moment vicariously through the stars and the celebrities of Hollywood. And they will spend all their time and they will sacrifice real and healthy relationships to the idol of following celebrity. It could be either the middle-class couple with a healthy retirement fund, or it could be the welfare recipient buying a lottery ticket every day who are both pinning their future hope on financial security. It could be the model mother or father putting the weight of all their hope for happiness in their children. Sadly, it might be the children that they ultimately sacrifice on the altar of meeting their demands and expectations. It could be the single man or the single woman who has been stuck in depression for years because the soulmate that the movies have promised them, the husband or the wife they count on so much for their future joy has not yet appeared in their life. It could be that university student hanging by his belt from a stairwell because either the grades or the research grant that would launch his career didn't happen. It could be just about anyone you know right now, not even expecting happiness anymore, but just a few hours of escape that drinks another bottle of wine, that takes another hit of the bowl, or snorts another line in a desperate hope for some peace. John Calvin said in his Institutes, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We as human beings are very proficient at manufacturing new idols on which we pin our hopes for joy and happiness and satisfaction and even salvation. We can do it daily sometimes, weekly. 
as one idol in our life fails us and leaves us in despair, we can manufacture another idol and shift our hope to it, almost like an ice fisher in the late spring, hopping from one melting ice flow to another, hoping to reach shore. We, in our hearts, are idol factories, and we desire to put our hope and our security and our future joy in something, anything. Now, are all of these things bad that I'm talking about? Is it bad to have money? Is it bad to have a spouse or great children? No, it's not bad to have those things. But idolatry happens when we take even a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. When we pin our hopes on items and ideals and individuals who were never meant to carry that hope and will ultimately betray us. And we all know people, as I went through that list, we all know people, maybe even ourselves too uncomfortably, who fit into one of those or a thousand other stories of what we can see now has become idolatry in our life and the harm that idolatry causes. There is no question we have an idolatry problem at the root of the human heart. Without God, we all will instinctively place our hope and then pour our lives into something, anything, in order to feel secure and find joy. And thousands upon thousands of people, even in our own small community here, are feeling the despair and the hopelessness of an idol in their life that cannot deliver. Even Christians do this. Because while we are still on earth, our hearts will want to be idol factories. I don't know what your idol is. I don't know where you turn to when it's not God for your peace or your joy or your salvation. But we all have little household idols that will harm us if we're not careful. And we need an answer with how to deal with them. Just as with our identity, we were never meant to make an idol of the created. Our only true hope, our only true joy and satisfaction and salvation comes not from the created, but from the creator. And I think if we think that we can find satisfaction apart from God, we will only have years of disappointment until we realize where our hope truly lies. So what does God say about this? This is a reality that Dylan, Madonna, Shania Twain, poets throughout the centuries have noticed that psychologists and psychiatrists understand. But what does the Bible have to say about it? And does the Bible identify this problem? And does it have an answer? Let's pray as we consider what God says. Father God, we thank you for your word. We understand that you are, that you know us intimately, that you are the best diagnostician of the human condition because you created us and that your word is the place where we will find the truest answers. And so, Lord, I ask as we open up your Bible, as we open up your scripture, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the truth that you would have us here today and that you would set us free, believer and non-believer, Christian and seeker, as we seek to find and place our hope in the right place. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does God say about this? Does the Bible address this issue of idolatry and and what is the answer? And of course, as you know, even using that word idolatry, we're using a biblical term, we're using a religious term. There's 66 books that make up the Bible and the topic of idolatry is addressed well over 400 times. So obviously this is a topic that is addressed on average more than once in every book of the Bible. Just as we saw last week on the topic of our identity, the Bible addresses idolatry as a foundational issue facing us as human beings. Just like identity, 
idolatry or that thing that we pin and set our hearts upon is a fundamental category of what it means to be human as God created us. Our hearts are meant to have their hope in something. We see this very early on in the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments. Um, in Exodus 21 to 3, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's going to be important. He says, You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Have no other gods, no other idols, no other things that we set our hope on other than God. And a lot of commentators have observed that it is impossible to break any other commandment or any other law of God without first breaking this commandment, the first commandment. Any disobedience, any sin, any rebellion, even any indifference towards God, even hope in our own moralism or religion, all of those things that we would consider sin, they are only possible if we have already lifted something else up in the place of God. We've already replaced God and had another God put in his place. And so every sin requires that we first disobey the first commandment. So whatever motive for disobedience, whatever purpose in our rebellion, whatever has captured our hearts and our attention and our affections away from God has become a little God for us. It's become an idol that has taken priority over God and it is receiving the hope that we should have placed in God. Because we all hope in something and anything we hope in that is not God is merely an imitator. It's an idol and therefore everyone who rejects God is an idolater because they've put their hope and set their lives in pursuit of a created thing instead of the creator. You see, this is how central idolatry is to ourselves as humans and our relationship with God. Paul restates this reality in Romans chapter 1 where he describes the essence of sin and the essence of our rebellion. You see, you have to understand that the Bible doesn't teach us that our sinful nature is a result of not following a list of do's and don'ts. That's not what makes us sinners because we didn't follow a list. It stems from a root issue that we have turned away from God and made gods of creation and gods of ourselves. We've made gods of our own self-gratification and wisdom and moralism. And because we've turned away from God, then we do things that are sinful. Romans 1, 21 to 23 says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul says we've exchanged the creator for the creator, things made in our image or that stem from us, rather things that flow from God. And John says in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So John says, if our affection, if our hearts, if our love is for worldly things, then our affection is in the wrong place and we don't have the love of God. So God has put these boundaries in place because idolatry, around idolatry, because God knows the danger that lies ahead of the human heart that embraces idolatry. So God puts, uh, gives us these commands. He gives us some of these lists of do's and don'ts that we're going to get to later on in the conclusion. He gives us a law because he understands how fundamental idolatry is and how dangerous idolatry is to the human heart and how we can go so far astray under the influence of idolatry. So what are the dangers of idolatry in our life then? 
The first thing that we can learn from scripture is that false idols conform us. Psalm 135, 15 to 18 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands, and they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And so here's another songwriter who came a long time before Bob Dylan and who also wrote about idolatry in the human heart. And this psalmist, this singer, observes that we become like or we resemble or we take on the characteristics of the things that we worship. We're conformed by what we put our hope in. The idol we serve begins to tap into each segment of our life and we find ourselves aligning more and more to the service of the idol and resembling it. And it makes a lot of sense according to the psalm writer's observation because ultimately we are the creator of our own idols. And so they resemble ourselves. They resemble our own ideal image of ourselves. And so we desire to become what we imagine them to be, which is us. And so we only end up being conformed to the false identity of the idol we created. Let me put it this way. Those who idolize beauty conform more and more to the stricter ideals of beauty. And our own image becomes more and more distorted as we sacrifice more and more and go to greater and greater lengths to grasp our hope in beauty. I urge you, do not Google steroid muscle injection for guys. You don't want to see what these people have become. Or don't Google botched plastic surgery for anyone. The things that we go to and the lengths that we go to to serve the idol or the god of beauty are extreme. Or those who idolize money become more and more obsessed with wealth. Their lives revolve tighter and tighter around wealth. It conforms their behavior so that they act in the service of wealth. Our idol of wealth may mean that we sacrifice time with our family. We begin to resemble more and more the obsessive workaholic or the rich snob who only has the best and spends time with people who have the best. And we don't spend time with those who have less or offer anything to those who have less because everything in our character must serve the God of wealth. It's interesting the psalmist says that our idols have mouths but don't speak. They have eyes that don't see. And we'll have more on that later. But notice that as we are conformed to be like our idols, the less likely we are able to see the deformity of our false worship in ourselves. We don't see what other people see as we worship our idol because we've lost our eyes to see clearly. And people will not take seriously what we have to say because we have lost the credibility to speak. Whatever idol you serve is ultimately working to conform you, and that is dangerous. Be careful what you put at the center of your life. Secondly, false idols enslave. Galatians 4, 8, and 9, the Apostle Paul says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Paul says there are things that are not God's by their very nature. They're created, not creator. And you were enslaved to them before you knew God. He goes on, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So Paul says very clearly here, 
that we are enslaved by the very thing that we think is setting us free. Not only are we conformed by our idols, it ultimately is a trap for us. As we say on one hand, we don't want to follow religion. We don't want to follow God. We don't want to be trapped in this particular life that God wants for us. We have the freedom to choose any and all of these other idols out there in the world. And I can pick any one of them to follow. Paul says, do you really want to return to that slavery? Because those things are not God's and they enslave you. To go back to the example of wealth and what I mean by enslavement, as we serve that idol, we may sacrifice our freedom even to do good to help others because we must preserve our wealth. The idol of money prevents us and constrains us from even doing good to those who need it. Our life choices are enslaved to whatever serves our hope and joy and salvation in wealth. We cannot cause anything to risk the wealth that is our salvation and is our joy. The idol of wealth may even cost us our own literal freedom. It's ironic that Martha Stewart, one of the richest self-made businesswomen of her time, she had a net worth in 2003 that Forbes reported of $1 billion. She spent five months in prison because of an insider trading deal that saved her, get this, $45,000. And her net worth dropped by over $330 million the very next year. So our pursuit of wealth and greed can take away our freedom and enslave us figuratively and even literally. But we can be enslaved by anything, even a good thing, when we make it an ultimate thing. It not only conforms our identity, it makes demands that we do on how we, what we do and how we act. We can be enslaved if we depend on our friends for our joy and salvation. We can be enslaved if we depend on our children. We can even be enslaved by inanimate things. There comes a point in time with two houses and three cars and a boat and entertainment systems and club memberships that all of a sudden we wake up one morning and we discover that even our things don't really serve us. We spend all of our time serving our things. We have to fix the roof and mow the lawn and wash the boat and rewax the car and update the operating system and renovate the kitchen and clean out the basement and install the security system to protect the cottage and make time for all our memberships and buy another truck to move or haul all of our stuff and then book off a Saturday morning to have a yard sale to get rid of some stuff so that we can buy more stuff. Who is serving who in this picture? Who is the slave? Things that are not God's have more to say about how we spend our time than God does. We're often serving the things we own more than we're serving God. And Paul says it's not just things or ideals that we idolize, but we even idolize our own wisdom. In Romans, he said, pretending to be wise, we become foolish. Here in Galatians, he says, the elementary principles of the world enslave us. And I'll talk about that a little bit more later. But Paul says that the ideas and the principles and the philosophies that we devise under our own understanding and that we make in our own image do not set us free. They only enslave us. The next great economic, social, philosophical, or political idea, whether it's Marxism, capitalism, intersectionality, environmentalism, whatever it is, it is not going to set you free. It will also, in time, eventually enslave you. All of those elementary principles of the world are ultimately a false hope. They have let us down time and time again, and they will continue to leave us in despair. Thirdly, false idols require real sacrifice. False idols conform us, false idols enslave us, and false idols require real sacrifice. 
Jeremiah 32, 35 says, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Molech. Though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So God says, here are the people who are literally sacrificing their children to gods. An idea that did not even enter into God's mind to tell them to do, that they should do that abomination. Psalm 106.38 says, They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. False idols demand real sacrifice. I've already covered this topic pretty thoroughly in the ideas that false idols conform us and that false idols enslave us, that false idols require that we sacrifice to them in order to have any hope in them, even false hope. So I won't belabor this, but everything we set our heart on, everything we put our hope in, demands something from us. A false idol in its final form becomes an addiction. And an addiction will eventually take everything away from you. Whether you end up addicted to sex or addicted to gambling or addicted to alcohol or drugs or food or even shopping, that false idol will demand more and more and more from you. That false idol will become an addiction that will take your money, it will take your friends, it will take your health, it will take your unborn child, it will take your family, it will eventually take your life. And you will have nothing left. And what you thought would bring you joy ends up destroying you. Because not only do false idols demand real sacrifice, at the end of the day, False idols cannot save you. Jeremiah 11:12 says, Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they made, off- made offerings, but they cannot save them in their time of trouble. All through the Bible, we've been going through a whole bunch of different verses here, Old Testament and New Testament. God has the same things to say about idolatry. There is a false hope in these false gods, and they cannot ultimately save you. God says, I see the idols you have made and the hope that you have placed in them. Whether it's wealth or greed, which the New Testament says is idolatry. Or even as Moses was returning from the mountain of Sinai with the Ten Commandments written on the tablets. And as he descends from the mountain with the law of God coming with him, he already finds the people of Israel worshiping a golden calf that they made from their own gold. And they are saying, these, this is the God that saved us from Egypt in Exodus 32, 4. I mean, God had literally just freed them from 400 years of slavery and released them and saved them from the army of Egypt just a few days ago. And already the people of Israel are turning to their man-made gods. But why can't our gods save us? Our gods can't save us. Because as I mentioned before, and I want to expand on a little bit here, because the gods we make are only us. Habakkuk 2.18 says this. says, What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. At the end of the day, any idol that we construct is simply us trying to save ourselves. Any hope that we place in something that we have created is only putting hope in ourselves. 
But if we are in need of saving, as the prophet Habakkuk is pointing out, how can we expect to be able to save ourselves? The analogy I've often used and point out is that if a drowning person could swim, then they wouldn't be drowning. If we are in need of rescuing, if we are in need of being set free, if we are in need of joy and of life and of security, then we can't find it in ourselves or else we would already have it. False idols have us looking for hope in the wrong place. Specifically, false idols distract us from proper hope because our false idols are only ourselves and we are already in need of saving. Jonah 2.8 says this, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake or they deny or they leave their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. False idols distract us from where real hope lies. Psalm 115, 1-8 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And so you see what Jonah is saying is that when you pay regard to idols, you are forsaking or you're giving up or you're turning your back on true hope. You're forsaking steadfast love of God. The psalmist says the same thing. Our, our God is in the heavens. Our, our God does as he pleases. He's all powerful. He can rescue us. Their idols or their little gods are silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. You see the difference that the scripture is making here. Our, our hope is in the steadfast love of God and in his ability to rescue us. Our hope cannot be in the created. God says, don't look to yourself, don't forsake true hope that lies in the steadfast love of myself. We're never meant to find our hope and our joy and our salvation in the idols that we create. We're not meant to find it in the horizontal. God says, look to me, look up, look vertically. I'm not drowning with you. I'm on solid ground and I can rescue you. Now, at this point, you might say, but Wait, Paul, doesn't God require sacrifice? Doesn't he require service in order for us to be saved? When you read the Bible, and sometimes even as you hear some Christians talk, it may seem that way. But it's not what the Bible ever says. We don't serve God in order to earn our joy and salvation. Rather, God rescues us from our slavery and then shows us how to live properly in our new freedom. As idols and slave, God sets free. Remember that God rescued the nation of Israel before he gave them the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. And that's a significant picture of God's rescuing and redeeming process. God didn't say to a nation enslaved in Egypt, if you start following my rules, then I'll save you and then you can be happy and safe. No, God rescued his people. He saved them and set them free. And he said, now that you are rescued from slavery and death, I want you to live as you were meant to live in my love and don't return to slavery. Now, you're not very good at it yet. You still want to return to slavery in your hearts. And so let me show you how to expose your old nature. And let me show you how you can live in my love freely. And he wrote his law in the old covenant to show the slavery of our hearts and how it should be conformed. And then he showed us again in the person and wisdom and truth of Jesus in the New Testament and gave us a new covenant, a new way of being set free through Jesus. And, and, and he allowed the love of Jesus to capture our hearts to set us free. 
And God still saves us the same way today as he saved Israel from Egypt. God will step into your sinful and rebellious life in lots of different ways. You will find God intersecting with you. And at some point, he will rescue you even from your own rebellion and your slavery to a false idol that has let you down. And in the midst of your despair and your slavery, God will rescue you. And if you recognize his rescue and if you repent, that means turn and walk opposite to the way that you were walking, then God will begin to teach you how to walk in life and how to walk in freedom. And that will always mean giving up your old slave masters. It will mean setting aside the so-called wisdom of the world, which is really foolishness. It will mean setting aside the pursuit of wealth or the pursuit of beauty or the pursuit of anything, even good things that you have made ultimate things because they will ultimately trap you. It will mean no longer being conformed to the elementary principles of the world, no longer being conformed by worldly ideas of beauty or worldly ideas of wealth or truth or or security. It will mean being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, because we will resemble what we serve. But this release from our old slave masters and this transformation into the image of Jesus is always for the purpose of our freedom, not a return to slavery, for the purpose of our joy and his glory forever, because God does not disappoint. So yes, in a way, God does ask us to sacrifice our old life on the altar. He does ask us to die to ourself and come alive in Jesus. But it's because he wants to rescue us and save us. Ezekiel says in 1823, God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his ways and live? See what God is saying? I don't want to enslave anybody. I don't want anybody to die. I want people to turn away, that is repent. I want people to turn from the false idols of the world and the false hope that is ultimately letting them down. And I want them to live. And they find that in me. Jesus says it this way, I have come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners in Luke 4:18. Jesus says, I've come to end this slavery to false idols. 2 Peter 3, 9 to 10 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, Peter's saying the same thing about God that Ezekiel said, that, that God is not slow, but he's patient. He's wishing that no one would perish and that everyone would turn and repent and walk in a new way towards life and hope. So how does this happen? How do we set ourselves free, even as Christians, from the false idols of this world? How do we identify idolatry and give it up? Given the fact that our hearts are idol factories, given that we are made to serve and to worship something, given that we have to put our hope in our future joy and future salvation in something, we can't just remove idols from our life, which is the mistake we often make. We're simply going to try to get rid of this idol and get rid of that idol and get rid of that idol. In fact, what we need to do is realize that the only way idols leave our hearts is if they are replaced by a greater affection. Because our hearts are made to orbit some kind of sun, to have some treasure at our center, to pursue hope and joy and salvation somewhere, we need a new affection. We need a new sun that we orbit. We need a new hope. Thomas Chalmers, an old Scottish pastor who preached in the 
18th century, preached one of the greatest and most well-known sermons in history in which he observed, the heart is not so constituted to have nothing on which to lay hold of, and the only way to dispossess it is of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And he says again, we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God, and no other way in which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building up ourselves on our most holy faith. So what Chalmers is saying is that the only way to get false idols out of our heart is with the expulsive power of a greater affection, and that greater affection is given to us in Jesus Christ. God says, here's how you set yourself free of old idols. You need something new at the center of your heart. You need something new at the center of your life. Something that will save and not disappoint. Something that is outside of yourself and is able to rescue you. God says, put Jesus at the center of your solar system. Let him be the sun of your life that your life revolves around and which sheds light and life on you. Set your hope in salvation and in, in my steadfast love and bind yourself to me for you will find yourself liberated and set free from every other false hope and every other idol that seeks to enslave and consume you. We need this expulsive power, this expelling power of a new affection and God has provided that power in Jesus Christ. So if you're feeling the burden and the chains of whatever this world has captured you by, if you are feeling the despair of hopes pinned on this world constantly disappointing you, if you long to be set free from whatever has enslaved you, then nurture your love and affection for the person of Jesus Christ and let him be the expulsive power that pushes that idol out of your life, whatever it is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is the best searchlight, the clearest mirror, the most precise scalpel in which we can examine and in which we can operate on the human heart because we do need our hearts operated on. Father, I am thankful that you understand the problem we face in idolatry, how we set things up in our life and pin our hopes and our satisfactions on them, and then they ultimately fail us. But you have not left us alone in that. You have sent your son. You have said, here is the greater affection. Here is the God who you can trust, who will not fail you, who is faithful. And so, Father, I pray for myself. I pray for other believers. I pray for those who are seeking that if we have put our hope in anything other than God, if we've pinned our happiness on things that have ultimately caused us to despair, that we would turn even now and lean in and cultivate and nurture our love for you and our understanding of you. Because as we put you at the center of our life and everything that we do revolves around and conforms ourselves to living in the freedom that you offer, you offer us joy and satisfaction you offer us salvation and glory forevermore. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.